Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. I am dedicating today's show to Rabbi Gerald Wolpe, an internationally known rabbi who had a memorable, magical voice. He set the standard as a rabbi, husband, and father. Thank you, Cousin Elaine, for marrying Jerry more than 50 years ago and enriching our family. My Right Fit Method In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. I carefully select my guests who serve as powerful users of my Right Fit Method. A key component of that method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. My guest today, Stephen Freed, is soaked in passion. But passion is not enough. Stephen and my other guests know how to harness their passion. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career, as a medical school dean to heading a $60 million education program at the National Institutes of Health, and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I have observed that figuring out right fits is extremely difficult for many people to do. As a result, they continue taking the wrong fit road and wonder why they are in wrong marriages, wrong careers, or wrong homes. The solution is simple. Stop asking who is the best or what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting. If all your choices are wrong and you pick one, which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a barrel of rotten apples. Grab one. What do you have? A rotten apple. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, continue listening to today's show. And after the show, visit winwithoutcompeting.com to read excerpts from my book. On to my guest today, Stephen Freed, the journalist and the rabbi, the dual career stories of Stephen Freed, 
and the late Gerald Wolpe. Stephen Freed is an award-winning investigative journalist and essayist, the author of four acclaimed books, The New Rabbi, Bitter Pills Inside the Hazardous World of Legal Drugs, Thing of Beauty, The Tragedy of Supermodel Gia, and Husbandry, and an adjunct professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. A two-time winner of the National Magazine Award, the Pulitzer Prize of magazine writing, Freed has been a prolific writer of feature stories and personal essays for Vanity Fair, The Washington Post Magazine, GQ, Rolling Stone, Glamour, and Philadelphia Magazine, where he also served for two years as editor-in-chief. His most recent book, Husbandry, is a collection of essays he wrote as the heart of a husband columnist at Ladies Home Journal. In 2002, the book The New Rabbi, which is in the news again since its main character, beloved and charismatic Rabbi Walby, recently died, was highly praised by the New York Times, Washington Post, and Boston Globe, and featured on All Things Considered. It was chosen as one of the best books of the year by Publishers Weekly, which said, Stephen Freed took what many would consider a mundane topic, a Jewish congregation searching for a new rabbi, and turned it into a marvelous journalistic memoir that recorded his own spiritual development as well as a community's quest for leadership. And it was named one of the year's top ten books on religion and spirituality by beliefnet.com. Rabbi Gerald Walpe, who died on May 18, 2009, at the age of 81, was married to Dr. Arlene's first cousin, Elaine. Freed, writing about Walpe's death, said, American Jews lost one of our great sermonizers, one of our most fascinating and challenging pulpit leaders, and a Renaissance rabbi whose dramatic life yielded several distinct acts, each with its own powerful teaching moments. Welcome to Win Without Competing, Stephen. Hi, thanks for having me. You grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. What did you like to do as a child? I uh, played a lot of basketball, a lot of basketball. I was taller than everybody else. That was a good thing. How tall and, uh, are you, Stephen? Oh, I'm 6'2", but I was 6'2", when I was about 11, so that was very tall then. And uh, I was a big summer camp kid, and I was a big Jewish community center kid. So uh, part of the reason I ended up writing The New Rabbi certainly is because when I was a kid, I grew up in the bosom of what was then a very distinct uh, kind of uh, world of the JCC and the synagogue and played basketball for the JCC team and was in plays uh, for the JCC. So that's, uh, that's what I did. My life revolved around the Jewish Community Center. Tell us about your parents and the significance of the Jewish bookshelf in your home as you were growing up. Sure. My parents uh, had a book club um, from the time I was very, very young. And, in fact, it only disbanded recently. My father died 12 years ago, but the club uh, continued for pretty much for 50 years. 
So these couples that we listen to talk uh, about books every uh, once a month um, for all these years continued for all this time. My father was an av- uh, ran a furniture store and later became an advertising executive. My mom uh, take, took care of us, took care of the house, and later worked at my dad's company. But my parents were very passionate about books, and uh, we uh, we paid great attention to that. In fact, all the kids whose parents grew up, whose parents had this club all grew up to be either avid readers or a couple of writers. And uh, one of the things that I observed growing up Jewish was that uh, most Jewish households have a Jewish bookshelf, or a couple Jewish bookshelves, uh, which has, you know, your all the Bibles and uh, the books that you got in Hebrew school and books that were bought at charity auctions and things like that. But what I always felt about that Jewish bookshelf was that it didn't have journalism in on it, and I was interested in journalism. So uh, it was something that I always noticed, that the books were very reverential about synagogue life. Um, they could be very controversial about Israel and other issues, but not so controversial about American congregational life, American Jewish life. So I felt even as a kid that that was something that was lacking. Well, when did you become attracted to journalism? How did your passion, uh, I hope you heard that I said that you are soaked in passion. Um, I think that that's fair. I mean, passion is one of the things that uh, that drives being a writer. If you don't have passion for it, uh, goodness, you're, you're never going to do it. Um, you know, I, I wrote from the time that I was a very young man. I was always encouraged to write creatively. And um, in the Jewish community centers during those years when Jewish Center Youth Movement was very popular, we had, um, you know, competitions every year for writing, and we would write movies, and we would write plays and do vocal performances. So the writing part of that was a very big part of my life. And, in fact, you know, there were a lot of interesting people in those youth groups. I mean, uh, Jeff Birnbaum, who writes... Uh, for Business Week now was in that group. Uh, Julie Sherman, who wrote best-selling book with David Hackworth. There were actually a bunch of us from Harrisburg who went on to become writers and were mostly driven initially uh, because of the David Wolpe, you know, Rabbi David Wolpe, who grew up in that environment as well. Are you still in touch with these people? Uh, some of them, yeah. I mean, you know, when you grow up in a Harrisburg is a is, is, a, is a very small town, and uh, the people who lived in the Mid-Atlantic region. Uh, who were involved in JCY were very close to each other, and a lot of us do still see each other and stay in touch. And uh, to this day, I mean, those people and the people that I went to summer camp with were the people who made up my reality, and uh, I stay in touch with them as many of as I can. And now, of course, with Facebook, people are starting to reconnect again. At age 11, the rabbi of your synagogue left. Little did you know that you would write a book about him many years later. The impact of his leaving was etched in your memory. Take us back to that period in your life and tell us how you felt when you heard that Rabbi Gerald Walpe was leaving you. Well, my, you know, my, my dad especially was pretty angry that Rabbi Walpe was leaving. I mean, people in my uh, synagogue uh, had great love for Rabbi Walpe and he had uh, brought them through a very difficult period in America and American Jewry, and many of them had been crystallized in their feelings about him in terms of Israel because he'd given a very famous speech on the on the flat on a flatbed truck in the back of the Jewish Community Center, after which uh, my parents donated all the money that was supposed to be spent for our new carpeting uh, to Israel, and many other people uh, made similar uh, very large donations at that time. Uh, people, they made a record of it. People went out and bought the record as well. 
So that was my earliest memory of him being somebody who was so important in the community. And then, you know, when you're a kid, you don't always know what's going on in the politics of your synagogue, but I certainly knew, you know, my father was used to going to Rabbi Wolpe's uh, Sunday study classes. That was very important to him. And uh, when he couldn't go to them anymore because Rabbi Wolpe was leaving to go to a big city synagogue in Philadelphia, he was not a happy guy. Now, I will say that the ra- we were lucky enough to pick a, a rabbi to replace him who was terrific, but people always as they always do with rabbis, they always would compare him to Rabbi Wolpe. It's really hard to be the new rabbi, and I I learned that from the time I was a young man. But I think that when you say about compare, do you believe that they felt that Rabbi Wolpe set the standard for rabbis? So they wanted to see whether the new rabbi at your synagogue matched that standard. Well, I think that there's some of that that's, that's particular to Rabbi Wolpe, and there's some of it that I now understand is is just part of transitioning, which is so difficult. When you have a leader that people love and they didn't want him or her to leave, and the new person who comes in is always compared, usually unfairly, to that person who left. In this case, I mean, Rabbi Wolpe was a really singular, especially as a sermonizer, somebody that everybody recognized then and continues to recognize today, just one of the amazing voices, and that is a talent that you that other people just often do not have. So it's difficult. Those were times when people really wanted religious leadership. I'm not sure that we look to our religious leaders to, you know, to read the New York Times to us today, the way that people did in the 1960s. So it was really a different time in the rabbinate, a different time for all clergy. So, but there's always the transition between leaders is really hard, and you think that you're going through something that's really unusual and really specific to your rabbi or your leader and the one who's coming in. And what you find out later is that mostly this friction is an artifact of the difficulty of having a new leader when you didn't want a new leader. You wanted your old leader. How did investigative journalism become the right focus for you? Well, I was, uh, when I was at college, I went to the University of Pennsylvania uh, to become a lawyer and uh, came out to become a magazine writer. And, but at that time, I was learning how to do all different kinds of writing. Uh, Penn has a very good uh, weekly magazine, 34th Street, and we were learning how to do investigative writing, profile writing, personal essay writing. And I also, like most young writers, thought I would write a novel. Uh, everybody thinks they want to write a novel. I had a wonderful mentor in college, a woman named Nora Magid, who was sort of the one-woman journalism school at Penn. And she helped me with a novella I was writing, and when it was over, she said, please never write fiction again. So that was one of the things that really pushed me towards doing nonfiction writing and more serious nonfiction writing. And in the late 70s, when I was graduating from college, uh, Mother Jones magazine started to become very popular and big investigative stories. I remember one specifically about the FDA and about devices that were banned in the U.S. that were being sold in third world countries and hurting people got published. I was very influenced by that. So uh, I thought early on that it would be amazing if somebody would pay me to do these things. And I was lucky enough over the years to slowly build a career that would allow me to do that. I think it's interesting that you mentioned you originally went to Penn because you were planning to be a lawyer. I know that when we talked prior to the show, you had told me that your dad wanted you to become a lawyer. Tell us a little bit about that, Stephen. Well, my dad had grown up in the retail business, and I think that he had always hoped that he would get out of that, which was his father's business, and be more 
of a professional. I mean, in the communities in the 50s and 60s, there was a much bigger line between the people who were lawyers and doctors and everybody else. And my dad wished he had been a lawyer. And so I was the oldest uh, child, and I think that he wished that I would be what he wanted to be. And, you know, I was argumentative and, you know, obnoxious at that time, which are usually good, uh, you know, qualities to be a lawyer, and they seemed and smart and be able to talk on my feet. So I think that they thought that, if, that you know, if I graduated from Penn, that that's what I would end up being. Uh, but I'll give my parents all the credit in the world. My parents were more, it was more important for them to not tell me what to do. And uh, they really believed that, um, you know, that whatever I was going to turn out to be, as long as it was something that I really was passionate about and really interested in, that they would support it. So while they sent me to Penn to be a lawyer, they, uh, I mean, I don't think they were enthralled that I was going to try to be a magazine writer, but they really sort of uh, grinned and bared it. And uh, they actually had one of the members of the book club was a local newspaper reporter at the Harrisburg Patriot News, who I think I later found out that when they really were sort of wondering, like, should we let him do this, he was very encouraging. So I think he actually had a hand in them staying away from what I'm sure parentally they would, you know, probably wanted to say, don't do that. But, you know, they, they, they held back and they let me pursue my own dreams. Well, it sounds like they were very nurturing. They were. My parents, you know, my mother's still alive, my father... Uh, the two of them together were uh, amazing parents who uh, just wanted their kids to, uh, to to be excited about things, to be active members of the community. You know, they taught us a lot about responsibility, a lot about being part of the Jewish community, and uh, to be passionate about ideas, to be passionate about books. In your late 20s, you started writing books. You had thought about following a congregation who was searching for a new spiritual leader, but you did not proceed at that time. Why not? Well, you know, I had spent most of my 20s writing long magazine articles at Philadelphia Magazine, and I was also the music critic at GQ. Um, it came time to start thinking about books. And, you know, when you think about books and you're a magazine writer, you ask yourself whether an article you've already written might be a book or something new. Um, I had actually written a piece about the Jewish community in, in Philadelphia, and it was very difficult. And it was actually one of the few pieces I did for Philadelphia Magazine that I was dissatisfied with. It was actually one of the reasons that I reconnected to Rabbi Wolpe after having not seen him for a long time. I did interview him briefly for that story. But um, I felt that it was something that, that writing about the Jewish community was hard. And sometimes, actually, what you find as a magazine writer is that the things that you care about the most are the hardest things to write about because you're not learning about them anew and then teaching them anew to somebody else so you tend to forget to explain to somebody why you're so interested in something because you already are. So it's difficult, and I was interested in the challenge of someday writing a book about a Jewish institution because Jewish institutions had been so crucial in my life, summer camp, Jewish community center, synagogue. Um, so I thought I had the idea that following the life of a synagogue in and of itself could be a really interesting uh, piece of investigative journalism to do, but it would require the perfect set of circumstances. And so I just I left it on the list. I, it was, you know, my agent had the list we talked about, about books I might do in my life, and it just kind of sat there for many years. But at least the, plea, the, the plant or the kernel of the seed had been planted. Yes. You wrote Bitter Pills, which is an award-winning investigation of the pharmaceutical industry. The impetus for this book stems from your private life. Tell us more. Okay, well, basically, the, the first book I wrote was this biography of the model Gia, which was a third-person book. Uh, you know, it's a very, very typical biography 
um, became a movie with Angelina Jolie, so most people know about it. Uh, but I was very interested as a journalist in trying to do uh, some writing that was partly personal and partly investigative. Unfortunately, uh, a series of circumstances in my own personal life led to this. Um, in 1992, my wife had a very serious adverse reaction to uh, an antibiotic that had just been approved by the FDA called Floxin. And that reaction, she had a seizure and she had uh, various central nervous system side effects from this, which did not go away. And my desire to find out more about this as a husband uh, ultimately led me to do what I thought would be a small uh, magazine story about both the drug and how the drug had been approved and what I had found out about it during the course of my uh, research. Again, I had done this research mostly to get more information about my wife's health, and I ended up writing the article in part, you know, the editor of the magazine at that time was somebody I had grown up with in Harrisburg in the Jewish community, so he knew about what was happening with my wife. And we did this more as a, it was sort of a personal uh, project, but we thought some people would be interested in it, although, and it was very revealing of what had been happening to my wife, but she said it would be okay because she thought no one would read it, or maybe, maybe our families would read it and a handful of people would read it. And what happened was the week after it came out, we were on Good Morning America with the head of the division of the Food and Drug Administration, which had approved the drug. And uh, they got a lot of uh, difficulty from the host that day, and um, afterwards we expected him to sort of walk away. And instead, he came over to the two of us and congratulated us for our bravery in coming forward and telling our story and raising issues about the safety of medications and said that he really encouraged me to keep doing this and that he would help. So uh, I knew that I was on the right track, and I ended up doing research on the drug, in, on the drug business um, for the next five years uh, in various aspects of the drug business. I followed the development of the new AIDS drugs. I went back through the history of the FDA to try to write a book that really showed how difficult solving the problems of drug safety were, and even how much you know, patients and doctors, everybody involved in the process was contributing to the process. So it was really sort of a family therapy version of all the stakeholders in this process rather than a screed just against the pharmaceutical business, which has its problems but is not the only actor in this whole thing. It was a very powerful experience in lots of ways. When it started, you know, it would have been the typical thing, just rip the pharmaceutical business. But my wife said, you know, I still count on these drugs uh, for my health. And it was a very valuable thing to learn. And it, it was an amazing process. And when the book came out, uh, it was covered on Dateline and, and it made, uh, from what I understand, quite an impact at FDA, which was very rewarding for my wife and I. What did you learn from writing this book which might have helped to prevent the deaths of Anna Nicole Smith, Keith Ledger, and Michael Jackson? Well, I think people, when, when people die uh, from prescription drugs, as these three apparently have, I didn't investigate their cases, so I can't say for sure, uh, they're always stunned at how wide open the system is. And, and I was, as a, as a husband, just finding out about how doctors prescribe drugs. I mean, a doctor can prescribe any drug for anything he or she wants. And that system, which, ex which was brought into existence at a time when there were many fewer drugs and many fewer doctors and many fewer pressures on the medical system, really is probably out of date. And so when I look like somebody like Michael Jackson, who probably was working the system pretty well. I mean, the other part of this, one of the things that I learned in writing Bitter Pills was not to just blame the doctor, not to just blame the pharmaceutical business. I mean, Michael Jackson understood how to get drugs from different people and who wouldn't give them to them. And he, you know, what they say, he gamed the system. He knew what he was doing. 
So drug-seeking behavior is the responsibility of the person who's seeking the drugs as well. But the drug world you know, could be much better regulated than it is. I am hopeful, after many years of the Bush administration not paying much attention to the FDA, that the Obama administration will take drug regulation more seriously because it's much more as possible than it used to be. I mean, basically, you know, the pharmaceutical business keeps tracks of all the transactions involved in us buying our drugs and being reimbursed for our drugs. I think what those of us who are interested in drug safety would like to see is that more of the information is captured so that doctors can do a better job, there can be more oversight on what patients are being given so that, you know, you can't just go from doctor to doctor and each one doesn't know what the other one wrote for you. Well, that's what happened apparently with him, that he had multiple uh, prescriptions for the same drug. So how do you see this evolving, setting up this system to track all of this? Well, it, it comes from legislation. I mean, what people don't understand sometimes is that what the Food and Drug Administration can do is all based on what the underlying legislation is, and they can't change the way they do their business unless laws are passed to do that because they're a regulatory body. So I am hoping that you know one of the challenges of this whole health, all this healthcare work that the Obama administration is doing is to rethink some of these things. And my belief is they'll also take into consideration that computers allow us to have much more easy access to information. A lot of the decisions they used to make was because they thought, well, you couldn't do this. You couldn't keep up with everything. There was no way to do it. Now there is. And so while some people will feel that's a little too big brotherish, uh, when it comes to following the medicines that people take, I will be happy enough to have it be a little too big brotherish if it protects more people. And uh, there, there are many plans that have been put forward over the years. They just get shelved because there's no legislative support for them. I think what you're seeing right now, it's not dissimilar from the conversations they had during the early years of the Clinton administration, is you pull out the plans that people had that nobody would support and hope that this time they will understand how important it is to do that. And I, you know, I'm very hopeful because the right people have been put in charge of FDA, and I believe that the Congress could do this this time. And there's, there's great hope out there that this might be the time when the, when the drug industry is, a little, is more regulated than it has been. Well, I think it's crucial that we regulate the drug industry, and I agree with you that in this situation it's really not big brotherish. No, and, and it's, it's not just regulating the drug business. I mean, I don't want to be a drug company basher. It's regulating what everybody does, including us as patients. If we ask for drugs we shouldn't have, we are partly culpable for this, and we do that a lot. You know, just it's no different to ask for an antibiotic when you don't need one. It's a little different, but it's but still I the same also, thing that's troubling. Yeah, but I also think that sometimes people really don't understand the significance of taking too much of something. I agree. Yeah, I think we make I think it's an erroneous assumption to believe that they do. And I also think that if somebody is already an addict, how do you expect them to even know what's going on? They're certainly not sitting there and tracking their drug use. So it has to be, there has to be a system in place to do that so that they don't die from overdosing. Yeah, no, I mean, the truth is, is that somewhere the fact that the prescription got filled and paid for is being tallied. It's just not being cross-referenced in a way that, that, that best protects the patient. And I, think, well, and I think in the future it will be. Yeah, well, it's the cross-referencing that we need. Going further, when you were about to turn 40, your father died at age 62. How did that event change your life? 
I think in every way possible, and it's amazing 12 years later, I still don't feel that I've made that much sense of it. It's such a profound loss, the first time you lose a parent, and I was extremely close to my father. Uh, he was ill for six months before he died, so I was able to spend some time with him. It wasn't a sudden thing. My dad had actually had a heart attack when he was 29, so we lived in fear that he would have another one. So the fact that he died of cancer in a little bit slower way was in some ways a blessing. I mean, it was horrible, but at least we got to spend some time together. Uh, I was, you know, just lost after he died, did not know what to do, um, was actually trying to finish bitter pills and failing miserably to get that done. And so uh, the thing that I did was I started going to synagogue, which I hadn't done regularly in a very long time because I found, as many people do, that um, people, people are very sympathetic for a short period of time when you have a loss, but they do have a tendency to want to tell you it's time to move on. And in general, grief long outlasts people's ability to be you know, very actively sympathetic. And so that is, that's one of the biggest reasons why houses of worship exist in this country, so that, because people need to mourn longer than you know, sometimes the people closest to them uh, can be there for them. As you were focusing on taking comfort from attending your synagogue regularly, you became fascinated by the day-to-day dramatic life of that synagogue. At the same time, you became aware that Har Zion, an internationally known congregation, who had taken your rabbi, Gerald Walpe, from you as a child, was searching for a new rabbi because Walpe was retiring after 30 years of service. What did you do next? Well, basically, you know, I had been uh, writing uh, things in my journals just about the experience of being in my own synagogue, which, by the way, is not Harzion. I live in Center City, Philadelphia. Harzion is a suburban congregation nearby. Um, and I had just been paying attention to the daily life because I was going to synagogue every morning uh, to say the memorial prayers. And... Um, when Rabbi Wolpe announced that he was going to be retiring over a period of over a year, uh, I thought about that story idea that I'd had long ago about following the life of the synagogue and thought, well, following the life of the synagogue during uh, such a big change, a change in leadership, a change possibly in direction, that would be possibly a very dramatic project to do. And that felt like uh, it could be a good book. And so I went to Rabbi Wolpe, who um, I hadn't talked to in quite a long time, and I went to propose to him that he let me basically sort of lay siege to his last year as a rabbi and the process, which I knew would be difficult but hopefully fulfilling for the congregation, uh, of choosing a new leader and choosing the future of, their, uh, of this organization that meant so much to them. In The New Rabbi, you tell Wapi's story, the transformation of the congregation, as they conduct the search for the new rabbi, and your own story. When Gerald Walpe was 11, he lost his dad, and you were 40 when you lost yours. What was the significance and impact of Jerry's dad's death on him and his career? Well, although I will tell you that I didn't know this at the time when I reached out to him I reached out to him more because I thought this was an interesting story. And one of the first things we talked about, obviously, when we met, he had known my father well. He knew my mother well. And uh, I didn't realize that he was still as obsessed about losing his dad at 11 
as I was having just lost my dad at 40. And so we bonded very much on that issue, and it was something that uh, I think kept us going uh, during many of the conversations that we had over the next few years. It was a, a profound thing because, you know, the truth is when you lose a parent, it's hard to find people who still want to talk to you about it after the prescribed period of time when you're supposed to stop being upset. And he never stopped being upset. In fact, he talked to me about the fact that when he turned 40, which was around the age I was, he had become more interested in the issues having to do with his father's death because he had outlived his father, and he had never thought that he would outlive his father. So he actually started sermonizing about these kinds of issues at that time. So 40 had been a significant time for him in his father issues. In the small world of father loss, my rabbi in Center City, Philadelphia, Ira Stone, lost his dad about three months after I did. So these two rabbis who had so much part of my life, we were, there was a lot of discussion about lost fathers. Uh, that's why I jokingly refer to people who have lost their, their dads as being part of the dead father society, because when you lose your father, there's a thing that happens to you that only other people who have lost their fathers can understand. Would you say that the shared loss really brought you closer as, as um, I guess that would be an interesting thing, I think, to explore. Brought you closer how? Did you feel like he suddenly became a friend? How did you feel toward him? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. Look, your rabbi, by definition, when he's your rabbi, is kind of not your friend. That's he's my your, point. He's your leader. Um, you feel friendly to him. He knows a lot of personal information about you, but it's an interesting relationship that still has a tiny bit of distance by definition. The same is true of somebody that you're writing an article or a book about. You learn a lot about them. You share a lot of experiences together, but in a funny way, it's, it's, it's your job. So it was Rabbi Wolpe's job to know something about me, and it was becoming my job to know something about him. I don't want to presume to say what he felt about me, uh, but I would say that I always felt close to him. I was fascinated by him as a character, uh, very empathetic uh, to him and to his family. And uh, we developed, we spent an enormous amount of time together during what he referred to as his anecdotage, which was you know, sort of the end of his rabbinate and the period when he would really think about what had happened in his life, in Judaism, in America. So I got him at a time when there was time and energy to really look back over this time and which allowed me to do it as well. So we became close. We also became close in the project in that the project allowed us to discuss a lot of things and, uh, and share a lot of uh, personal stories and what they meant. And it was, it was a very interesting process, which went on for quite a long time. And I think it was fun for him. I know it was fun for me. Uh, I always look forward to going out there and closing his door. Rabbis don't get to close their doors that much. Um, and you know, turning on the tape recorder and just really sitting and talking for hours at a time. And I know you spend a lot of time eating. Uh, I read the book, and uh, I was fascinated about the comments that you made about the buffets and that you could have called the book the chafing dish. Well, you know, what happens is there's, there's two different aspects of covering a congregation, as I found out. I mean, I thought when you interviewed the rabbi, the rabbi gave you access to everybody. That was my misunderstanding of the dynamics of a lay-led organization. And what I found is the way that I got to know everybody else was really, you know, after services, Jews eat. 
So, you know, Harzion is known for its buffets, certainly every week just after Shabbat services, but if it's a bar mitzvah, it's, you know, endless. So I met and talked to a lot of people the way that you do at a social gathering, over the buffet tables, you know, the little cakes with the bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah boys' names on them, uh, ate a lot of those. And uh, it was very, you know, much a social thing, but I was always reminded myself, and I always reminded them because I didn't want to pretend that I wasn't. I was working. I was covering their lives, and that's what I got access to. But I must say it was very nostalgic because obviously I grew up in a situation like that, and, you know, to have your life be one big Oneg Shabbat, which is the name of the uh, event you have after Sabbath services, is, uh, it was fun. It was interesting. Different way of gathering information than I was used to. Did you put on any weight, Stephen, during these uh, times? You know, I always put on weight. I, I gain <laughs> it, take it off. That's a whole other, you know, I'm just a yo-yo kind of person and always have been. Someday I'll write a diet book, I'm sure. Uh, so, sure, yeah, it, this was not uh, a waste-limiting uh, uh, experience. Although they did pay, play basketball at Harzion after services, so I did get some exercise. There was an after-Shabbos basketball game with one of the rabbis, so it wasn't only eating. In searching for a new rabbi, Har Zion extended an offer to a rabbi who turned it down. Why did he turn it down, and was he the right fit? Well, you know, they're never going to know if he was the right fit, and they're, actually, ironically, they're really going to be thinking it because actually just a week ago, he took a job at the congregation down the street from Har Zion, which is a whole other story. But at the time... Everybody believed that he was the right rabbi, and um, he didn't want to talk to me so much about why he chose not to accept the offer, but it was a matter of great disappointment within the community, which felt that it had quickly, you know, what they believed was that they had quickly identified the right person, and they had solved this unsolvable problem, and then they could get on with their lives. And when he withdrew from candidacy and decided to stay at the congregation he was at, Nobody knew what to do. It was devastating. And um, that devastation and the shock, because the congregation believed, since it was a very famous congregation, that everybody would want its pulpit, and it never occurred to them that somebody would say no. And that that sent them reeling in lots of different ways. Do you believe that the congregation that he was with gave him a counteroffer? You know, nobody really talked about what happened. What what people told me was that ultimately um, his wife, whose father had been a rabbi, um, had decided that she really got cold feet about him moving from a very uh, close, medium-sized congregation to a big, powerful, you know, moneyed congregation like Harzion, and that that was really the reason uh, that they changed their minds. Um, so I think that it was complicated. It had to do with his family. I doubt it had to do with money. Um, I think it really had to do with a lifestyle decision that he made, but that nobody uh, could believe. And, and that also some people were angry because they said, well, if you really felt this way, why did you apply? You know, why did you take us through all this? They really kind of begged him to apply. But if he had said no, then they wouldn't have considered him. It was very complicated, and honestly, it was my first of many uh, realizations about how difficult it is to hire executives and uh, th- how many things can fall through the cracks. Interestingly, while this guy seemed like in many ways he might be the right guy for them, they barely had seen him in action. I mean, I actually went up and saw him at his synagogue preaching more than the people on the committee did. They just really liked him, and they had heard good things about him. So it was uh, it was a decision that they hoped 
would make this whole onerous process go away, and it could have worked for them. If he had said yes, uh, I would have been there a much shorter time, and honestly, when I was there researching the book, I thought he was going to say yes, and that the book was going to take a year. And so did Rabbi Wolpe. And the surprise when this rabbi turned them down, and suddenly we were going to go into a process that was going to take a whole other year and all kinds of other twists and turns, um, I was fascinated by this. It made the book much more interesting, but it certainly was not what the congregation had hoped for. The next step, Harzion decided to promote the assistant rabbi who turned out to be the wrong fit because he did not have the political acumen and management skills required to function as the CEO of a large, sophisticated synagogue. Finally, they hired the right fit after four years of searching. If you had to identify the major reason why the search was problematic, would you say it was due to a small pool of senior rabbis, an unclear blueprint of the right fit rabbi, making Walpi the standard against which they would measure potential rabbis against, or the fighting factions within the congregation? Well, it was all of those things. And well, I know that, but, but yeah, if you had to pick one, what would have been the key element? I know that from having read your book, that all of this contributed. I, I think that the, the basic thing that they couldn't get past in many ways was their unrealistic expectation that they would find somebody who felt just like Rabbi Wolpe to them, somebody who was, uh, was an old-fashioned, powerful public speaker, and um, I think that that was more a reflection of them than it necessarily was on the candidate pool. But the candidate pool is different every year. I mean, I, I don't know how much your listeners know about how rabbis are chosen, but basically there's a rabbi choice season, and whatever rabbis are coming out that year, those are the only ones you get to interview and choose from. So there's not like you don't steal rabbis. There's no free agency uh, that way. When your contract is up, you're allowed to look for uh, a job, and, it, and each of the parts of Judaism are monitored by what is a rabbinical union. So there are rules, and you can't poach. Uh, so the, the biggest thing, I, I think, is that in many cases, it's not just Harzion, although I found that out later, I mean, the congregations don't prepare. Because the biggest issue here, and I think this is one of the things that I learned, is that the key to choosing a great executive, a great next executive for a nonprofit or a for-profit organization is that the organization knows what direction it already wants to take, has really done its soul-searching, has done its own internal polling if it needs to, and is deciding to pick a leader based on what that leader can do to help them get to where they have decided to go. The people who try to hire a leader who say, well, if you hire the great, right guy and he's smart enough and he's charismatic enough, he'll solve all our problems, we won't have to address them. Those are the places that often make bad decisions, and this happens in congregations all the time, which is why sometimes they bring me in to lecture with them and to read the book with them so they can not make some of the mistakes that, was made at Har that were made at Harzion. Um, some of it's bad luck. Some of it's bad planning. Some of it is the, is the candidate pull. And some of it is unrealistic, ex unrealistic expectations because, in reality, if you have a leader for 30 years, you, you can be immune from lots of the changes in whatever field you're in for those 30 years because you have the, an old-fashioned you know, leader from the good old days. 
And the good old days only end when you have to replace that leader. And sometimes you find out the good old days ended 20 years ago and no one told you. So that is part of the self-evaluation process that goes with picking a leader that has nothing to do with which one you finally pick. You have to do, I mean, what I'm saying is you have to do that beforehand in order to successfully... Well, that goes back to what I asked about the blueprint. Did you ever see the blueprint of the rabbi for which they were searching? Will well, you actually I, see a set of standards and criteria in well, no, which, I mean, in which they talk about um, achievements that they anticipate that this new person would do for them? Well, keep in mind that I was not able to sit in on all the meetings of the search committee. I actually covered the search committee in an investigative way, developing sources on the committee who would talk to me. So I wasn't privy to all their paperwork. I was more privy to their their uh, discussions and, and, and their decisions. But what I would say is that it is they did not do what people now commonly do, which is what they usually what people now commonly do is that they will poll the whole community. It's very common to start the rabbi search process now by polling the community, you know, getting a real picture of what people want, and also realizing that you know, older people are going to want something different than younger people, but the younger people have to run the congregation someday. Unfortunately, the older people still have to pay for it often. So they, but they really need to take an assessment so that also the congregation is part of the process. The Harzion process, I mean, it wasn't enough for me to not be able to find out about it, but they didn't broadcast what they were doing so much. And they were hoping that they would quickly take care of it in sort of a star chamber way and, and solve the problem. And honestly, they almost did. They offered the job to somebody who might have been a good rabbi for them, and they almost dodged a bullet. And in fact, they did elevate their junior rabbi, but only after a whole other year of searching and interviewing other candidates because their junior rabbi was not qualified in the rules of the union to run that pulpit. He was too young. He hadn't been, had enough years as a rabbi. They ended up having to get a special dispensation to even uh, consider him for their senior rabbi because this was his first job in the clergy. Well, he was the wrong fit. He was. Uh, they seduced each other into the idea that maybe they could beat the odds because these are very well-established ideas in all, in all religious organizations, not just in Judaism, that... Uh, you know, it, and it's the same in businesses. I mean, you don't want somebody who's never run a tiny organization to have their first leadership job to be the head of the biggest organization. That should that job should only go to somebody who's already run small and medium organizations. That's well, and also successfully shown um, outcomes, have successful results, not just run because run is the process. One has to look at the outcomes. Why Jerry yeah. Walpy was successful is that he had successful uh, accomplishments. I mean, he really accomplished over those 30 years. Wouldn't you agree? Right. He uh, moved the synagogue. But he also, but he also did uh, the typical thing. He started at a small synagogue in Charleston. He moved up to a medium-sized synagogue in Harrisburg, and that then qualified him after 20 years of running those two congregations to go to a huge synagogue. And that is you know, what, what in general we believe in both the religious world and the non-religious world is the logical way that you grow in leadership. And, uh, you know, in this case, everybody hoped that a young guy who was charismatic and well-liked, and the dynamic in a synagogue is no different than any other place. The junior executive who everybody likes because he's younger and hipper than everybody else always has a following within the group. 
And the question is whether that following means that he should be running the whole thing. Even though when it comes time to choose a leader, there will be people in the group who want that because they want the young you know, guy who they really feel close to to be in charge. And sometimes that person can be elevated, but, but there are reasons in Judaism that there are rules against that because it's too soon. Jerry Walby set the standard as a rabbi, husband, and father. Tell us what standards he set, how he did it, and why we had two Rabbi Walpies. Well, basically, when I knew Rabbi Walpie as a kid, he was the sort of quintessential pulpit rabbi who helped you understand politics and Judaism and the big world. He was uh, you know, a, a macro speaker who spoke on the big issues. And he was extremely successful at that and had a whole career doing that. He was involved in bioethics. He was involved in lots of leadership uh, activities that involved the Jewish community and the African-American communities trying to put aside their differences. He was involved in all those important big-picture issues from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He was, I found out, in the mid-80s about to leave the pulpit, thinking about leaving the pulpit and becoming an academic, when he unfortunately had the opportunity to have a whole second career, and which challenged him as a father, as a husband, um, and what happened was his, his wife, Elaine, who I know is your cousin, uh, had a very serious brain bleed, uh, which almost caused her death. And in fact, at one point, he was encouraged to let her die or to let her be institutionalized because there would be no hope for her. He believed very strongly that she would fight her way back. His oldest of his fa- four sons, Steve, is a medical researcher, got them information that led them to believe that it was possible to encourage her to do that. And they began a, a separate journey, the journey of a, a husband and an impair, a wife with a chronic impairment. She was not able to completely come back from this stroke, um, but she made an amazing recovery eventually. And what Rabbi Wolpe did was turn that into the stuff of his sermons. He did it as much for, as a cry for help as any other reason, uh, but it became, he became somebody who had gone from uh, basically sermonizing primarily about bigger things, global things, to talking much more about personal relationships, about the relationships between husbands and wives, about taking care of people who are ill, and about the struggles that he was experiencing because instead of leaving the congregation, they sort of all embraced each other and went through an unusual experience that lasted for another you know, 10, 15 years. Uh, some people call this the locked embrace when you're sort of hug each other to comfort each other and sometimes it's hard to get out of it it's hard to you know move on but there's there was a sense in this congregation that they shared a second Jerry Wolpe I've had people talk to me say that that you know it's the second Jerry Wolpe who's the one that they really love because he was more human and more touchable to them he still was a great orator and they appreciated when he was mostly to them an intellectual leader and, and but then he became a spiritual and a warm human leader um, and I think it also changed his fathering skills. I mean, I have talked some about this with his sons, uh, but they went through an amazing experience together, the Wolpies, uh, and Rabbi Wolpe shared it himself, and later his son David uh, has shared it very much as a rabbi too. I mean, they all went through it. Uh, so, but it created a second life for him, and, um, and I kind of understood it because honestly, you know, when I had written about my wife's illness and shared the fact that we were in that situation, uh, it had been a similar experience. I mean, I wasn't a leader like Rabbi Wolpe, but to put yourself out there like that and let people know you that way does change you. 
So it ended up being something that he and I also had in common that I understood the power of and that it was important, its importance could never be minimized. Walby referred to serving the synagogue as the retail business of religion. What did he mean by that, and do you agree? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was great about hanging out with Rabbi Wolpe during the end of his uh, rabbinate was that he could be very open about how tough it was to be on the pulpit. You know, most people don't realize that uh, while there are more and more people graduating from rabbinical schools and all different kinds of seminaries around this country, there are fewer and fewer, a slower, lower and lower percentage of these people want to be on the pulpit because the retail business of religion, of ministering to us every day, gets harder and harder and harder. We are more demanding than ever. All the different technological things that we have access to are just one more way to call the rabbi, to call the priest and say, hey, come pay attention to me. It's hard, and it is a retail business. And having grown up in the retail furniture business myself, when he said that to me, I understood exactly what he meant. And when his kid, two of his four sons decided they wanted to be on the pulpit, he talked to them about, do you really want this? It's very hard on the family because people are very demanding, and it's hard for the rabbi to stay to have their own separate life. So, And it also just involves uh, many practical things. I mean, I think of the retail business as a very practical thing. So the practical issues of how do you write so many eulogies when you have to be at so many funerals? You know, how do you write wedding vows uh, that are different enough because the congregation, you know, a lot of the same people come to the weddings. How do you write things for the bar mitzvah boys that are different enough? I mean, it's a lot of technical work. It's not just all inspiration. And I mean, Rabbi Wolpe talked about that he made, he tried to make it as much as possible. A good order makes it look e- makes it look easy. But none of us saw how many times he had to practice things and think things through so they would seem easy. But you know, that's the retail business of religion. It is hard work to be on any pulpit, and that's because there's the endless demands of every one of us. I thought it was interesting when you wrote the afterword to the book, which was then published as part of the paperback edition of The New Rabbi. You wrote... It is time for me to stop praying at Har Zion, not because I feel in any way uncomfortable there, but maybe because I feel too comfortable. Well, basically, you know, this is a situation that is not dissimilar from what a rabbi goes through. I mean, I had to remind myself that covering Har Zion was my job, and I had a congregation of my own. And what I wrote about in the afterward, I mean, the, 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 what, was, what was odd about the new rabbi is by the time it came out, it ended with the young rabbi being elevated to the job. Uh, and by the time it came out, he was already in trouble. So I was already writing the afterward really from the second the book came out. And I felt that it was starting to be time that while I had had this very symbiotic relationship with the people at Harzion for a long time, I was not going to join the synagogue and be a member. Uh, and so I felt that it, I needed to take back my religious practice and start doing more of those religious things because I had shared many holidays with the people at Harzion, and I needed to start doing them again at my own synagogue because this project was going to end. And, it, you know, it is, does mirror what happens to a religious leader. You spend so many uh, holidays with a group of people, and you live through so many rites of passage, their births, their deaths, their, their bar mitzvahs, but, you know, it is your job, 
and someday it won't be your job anymore. Either it'll be your job to minister to another group of people completely, or you'll retire from the pulpit. So I felt that it was time for me to start separating myself a little bit from the congregation. But it was hard because what was happening there was so fascinating, so painful, and it was people that I had spent four years with who thought that they had solved the problem by elevating their young rabbi, who they loved, and who realized that they had, who decided they had made a mistake and then really took off after each other because of their anger that they had made this mistake together. And it was really not, it was not pretty. In terms of your investigative reporting for your other books, did you have a strong personal involvement? Well, I mean, you can't write a book without having a strong personal involvement. It takes over your life for many years. Uh, so the, the question often is whether you are going to use yourself as a character in the book so that the reader feels it's more personal. But I hope, and people have often commented about my writing, whether it's writing in the first person or writing in the third person, that it sounds like me. So the personal involvement, to many degrees, is about that, is about the, having the writing have the voice of the writer. But I, I, I'm not going to spend you know, years investigating the life of a young woman who was a model who died of AIDS uh, with any less involvement than I would uh, any other book. I, I mean, I, was, I am built to be an, an investigative reporter. I like long, in-depth projects that involve interviewing just tons of different people and then trying to figure out how all this complicated information can be made novelistic and narrative. It was interesting. When I interviewed... Anne Edwards, celebrity biographer and Pulitzer Prize nominee, she told me that when she wrote her biography of Judy Garland, mm -hmm. that she really was in pain because she had met Judy Garland as a child. Her parents had owned Chasen's Restaurant in Beverly Hills, and Judy Garland was a frequent uh, visitor to that restaurant, when Judy died, she left all her personal papers to Anne Edwards. Mm -hmm. And she had, I guess, bonded so closely to who Judy Garland was that um, she really said that never again did she want to experience that kind of pain that she had in writing the biography of Judy Garland. Well, I mean, everybody has their own experiences. I mean, writing is painful. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that, it, that it's, it's painful because of your personal involvement with the subject of your book or just because writing is hard. I mean, my wife is a novelist. We churn out a lot of books in this house. And honestly, whether they're books that are about me personally or biographies, I just finished my second biography, they are painful anyway. So um, in many – and sometimes you don't experience – you know, when I wrote the book about Gia – uh, my my feeling of pain with her was more when it was done, because while I was writing the book, it was really all about gathering enough information to make her come alive. So she only was alive for me when the book was done. So writing is painful, researching is painful, I agree. And it's different for every writer. Uh, but I'm not sure that it's only about the personal involvement uh, with the subject, because you know I've written two books about people who were dead before I ever started writing about them, and you can get very personally involved in that too. Well, in her situation, she was torn in terms of what to disclose because she had all these personal papers. 
Right. And I think that that was the challenge for her. In the new rabbi, I love the chapter entitled His Voice. Could you read the early section of that? Sure. be happy to. Uh, this is actually the first piece of writing that I did for this book. It was, originally was the very beginning of the book, and then, then, then the book had a second beginning, like many books do. Um, his Voice. What we missed most was his voice. Our rabbi could make the most stilted English translation of prayer sound like Shakespeare. His voice was muscular and musical, with an accent that sounded vaguely British at first, but later revealed itself to be all-American, with leftover Oz from Boston. This was not like the voice of God. Rabbis do not aspire to divinity. They have jobs in an industry that has, like many others, shifted from manufacturing to service. Rabbis are employees, religion workers, with unions and contracts and job-related injuries. They have to negotiate dental with the very congregants they must inspire. Still, while rabbis do not speak for God, some of them have God-given gifts. Rabbi Gerald Wolpe's gift was his voice. My dad had a story he loved to tell about the day when Wolpe took the makeshift stage of a flatbed truck in the parking lot of the Harrisburg Jewish Community Center. It was the summer of 1967, the height of the Six-Day War, and the rabbi brought home this crisis from halfway across the world with such eloquent urgency that my parents were inspired to pledge to Israel, then and there, every last cent that they had saved for brand-new wall-to-wall carpeting. Anyone who ever saw the mud-gray shag they wanted to replace would have agreed this qualified as a miracle. And it was documented for posterity. There was a record album made of the speech. My parents bought that, too. But then Rabbi Wolpe left us, and we never forgave him for taking that voice away. Thank you, Stephen. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. I look forward to interviewing you in March of 2010, prior to the publication of your next book, An Appetite for America, How Visionary Businessmen Fred Harvey created a hospitality empire that tamed the Wild West. Thanks very much for having me. Please join me again next Wednesday, July 22nd at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. I will interview sculptor Gunnar Johnson, the creator of Throne Is, used in the film Batman Forever. On July 29th, Steve Jordan, fitness guru who overcame paralysis and memory loss. On August 5th, Billy Lowe, celebrity hairstylist and beauty expert who has worked with Ellen DeGeneres, the cast of Desperate Housewives, and Deborah Messing, and many more. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, drbarro, that's Dr. Barrow, at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. To learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, Career Success, The Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. 
For information about career coaching, visit drbarro, that's drbarrow.com, and for search services, barrowglobal.com. Remember this trigger tip, walk down the right fit road and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.